The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This trial is far from over. Uh, Trump is still on the, the defense case is beginning on Monday. Don Jr. is going to be the first witness. Trump is on the witness list. He could still make a remark. We have seen lots of uh, attacks through surrogates on the court, the attorney general. If the judge views that this is an elaborate method to try to circumvent the gag order, if essentially there is another attack on the law clerk, we could see this issue come up again. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 11th, 2023. It's another edition of Trump Trials and Tribulations, recorded on November 9th before a live audience of Lawfare Material supporters. Are you one yet? You should become one. Joining me in the Virtual Jungle studio were special guest Adam Klasfeld of The Messenger, Anna Bauer, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. We talked about the Trump testimony this week, as well as Ivanka's testimony and her brother's testimonies. We talked about gag orders, gag orders in New York, gag orders in Washington, what it takes to be subject to a gag order. We also talked about Section 3 litigation under the 14th Amendment. And we talked about that Georgia Bureau of Investigation, not the FBI, the GBI report on all that went down in Coffee County. And of course, we took audience questions. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 11th, Trump Trials and Tribulations, Trump Ungagged. We are gonna start in New York where we had actual presidential testimony or former presidential testimony. Adam, what was it like? How was he? How'd he do? <laughs> well, it was very contentious, as I'm sure that you saw. It's not every day that any witness in a civil case, criminal case, it doesn't matter, decides to, in a trial, to spend the time on the witness stand insulting the judge repeatedly, calling the judge a fraud, uh, antagonizing the judge. This is all the more remarkable because this is a bench trial in a civil case. So it is ultimately up to the judge who has the power to put Trump 
permanently out of business in the state of New York, preventing him from ever serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation. And the former president spent his time on the witness stand saying that the judge was fraudulent, uh, saying that the ruling was fraudulent, attacking the judge. And it was one of the more remarkable performances I have seen on a witness stand, to put it mildly. One of the things that was very interesting when this happened was that that the judge had warned him very early on, saying that if Trump didn't answer the questions that were posed to him, he would cut short the testimony and essentially give what is known as a negative inference. And I'm sure people tuning into lawfare understand that means the judge would have interpreted the answers to every question in a light that was most damaging to the case. So that was a warning that was sounded off pretty early during Trump's testimony. And what was very interesting about that is Trump didn't heed the warning, but the judge held his fire. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting tactics here was that uh, the New York Attorney General's counsel, who was questioning him, uh, didn't take any of the many opportunities that presented themselves to object to the testimony as irrelevant. And the judge repeatedly invited him to. And we can see kind of in retrospect why that happened, uh, that the attorney general allowed Trump to keep talking. And throughout that testimony, certain admissions came to the fore. And Trump conceded, essentially, that he knew about the statements of condition, he of financial condition. He sometimes offered opinions on the statements of financial condition. And that's really the heart of the case here, because what the attorney general's case is, is that the Trump organization submitted fraudulent statements of financial condition to banks and insurance companies to get favorable terms on loans and coverage. So we saw his sons testify earlier in the week, uh, Don Jr., Eric Trump, actually previous week, <laughs> lose track of time in this trial, uh, that they were distancing themselves from these statements. Uh, Trump didn't do that. He can, he, there was a little bit of back and forth on that. He tried to distance himself somewhat from it. But on the overarching point, he conceded, yes, he knew about the statements. He sometimes gave opinions at, about the statements. And since this trial basically started, before trial began, the judge gave a ruling that found Trump liable for fraud based on these statements. And in, as many of your listeners know and viewers know, uh, issued an order dissolving his New York business empire that if he does not overturn that order on appeal, will put his companies into receivership to be sold, that it, it makes the testimony all the more remarkable. And the AG's strategy in retrospect of holding fire, of not objecting to, to answers that did not respond to the original question, that went on digressions, what emerged as a seeming strategy of letting Trump speak rather than objecting when the answers went off the beaten path seems to become clearer in retrospect than it did at the time with all of the theatrics in court. Anna? 
right. I got to give the people what they want. So, Adam, this was historic uh, moment with this former president who is testifying in New York court. Uh, His business is at stake. Reporters want to cover it and get into that courtroom. What was the line situation like the night before? So, Anna, I know from covering the criminal case in D.C. that the that reporters were camping out overnight in the criminal trial in Manhattan. I would say for the civil fraud trial, it wasn't quite as necessary. Yes, there were reporters lining up overnight, but uh, lower Manhattan, particularly during the civil fraud trial, is a kind of massive security situation where it becomes a virtual labyrinth of metal barricades surrounding nearby Foley Square. And so the even the physical ability to camp out overnight isn't really that much of an option. A couple of people did it and hired line sitters, but there the, the courtroom where this is taking place is a grand ceremonial courtroom that accommodates the massive press attention that it's getting. And of course, there is an overflow room like in many other courtrooms. So this was one where there wasn't the concert-like extravaganza of people camping out overnight. Yes, it happened just as it happens during the criminal cases. But this one, it was possible to wake up at a reasonably instead of unreasonably ungodly hour and get into court to wa- to witness history in the tradition of our jobs. I mean, I got to say, I'm kind of disappointed uh, to hear that the line vibes were not as competitive as they are uh, here in D.C. But that sounds great that you got to sleep a little, a little bit longer. <laughs> yes. Well, I, this is as folks have seen, it's a gauntlet of testimony. We had not only Trump's testimony, which is high profile enough, we had uh, Eric Trump's testimony, Don Jr.'s testimony, uh, Ivanka Trump's testimony. And that's not over. We just learned today that Don Jr. is going back to the witness stand on Monday. So whereas with some of the criminal cases, there were short periods of intense scrutiny on big court dates. Uh, there is still intense scrutiny that is spread out through a longer period of time. And that has been this trial. Uh, it's been a months long trial. It started in October. It's going to last through at least mid December, if not late December. So the high intensity for low periods of time. It's not quite the same situation as the criminal cases, but the civil cases have kind of been a marathon at a uh, short, at a slightly slower speed. Adam, I have a question for you. Actually, I'm curious. I, I think you're totally right to point out just how crazy Trump's behavior seems to be, given all that's at stake here. And I'm curious if you think that there's any strategy here, if there's anything that can be said in defense of Trump acting the way he is. Or is this really just the fact that Trump has no impulse control and this is just all id? Well, you know, I think there are arguments to both sides. There is the argument of this is Trump being Trump. Uh, one of the lines that the judge said was, this is not a political rally. And you could be forgiving, forgiven to think that it looked otherwise from the witness stand. It really did resemble the very same kind of thing that he would say on the campaign trail, the same kind of thing that he might say on Truth Social. 
And what is really interesting uh, and a remarkable line that came from the bench is when the judge said to him, you can attack me. And it's a very remarkable phrase because how often do you see a judge tell a witness and a defendant in any case, civil, criminal, you can attack me from the witness stand. And he took that opportunity again and again and again. And I think to your question, in terms of a strategy, it goes to where this case started, where this trial started. Before the trial began, we had this ruling, this rare corporate death penalty ruling, that if Trump doesn't overturn it, it has major repercussions for his business empire. And it was reported by Rolling Stone uh, the morning of his testimony that he was trying to bait the judge essentially into an overreaction that could have precipitated some sort of reversal on appeal. Whether or not that was a planned strategy, uh, I'm not privy to those discussions. And I think probably only his legal team and and Trump himself know for sure. But I think it was very evident to the judge that that could have been a tactic that Trump may have been trying to bait him into taking an action that might be perceived unfavorably by New York's appellate division first department, which is now reviewing that decision. Uh, I know that even today, uh, Justice Engeron uh, had basically had said at the end of the proceedings when he the New York Attorney General had uh, put forward a motion that had was seeking to block for defense expert witnesses. And he said, I don't want to do this trial again. I don't want to be reversed. He knows that if he takes a certain action that would give the appearance of unfairness, that would give the appearance of partiality, that would seem to strip due process uh, from the former president's uh, defense, that this might give fodder to compromising his rulings that he has made already and the rulings that may be to come. Uh, I mentioned earlier the corporate death penalty has already been imposed, but it's not necessarily over from here in terms of major penalties. There are potentially uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on the line in this case in disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. There is a potential ruling that would bar Trump, his sons, uh, Jeffrey McConney, the former controller of the Trump organization, and Alan Weisselberg, the former CFO from ever serving as a director or officer of any New York corporation. So these are heavy penalties that could be part of the future ruling. And I think the judge is intensely aware that any decision that he might make, any action, any comment that he might make could potentially be fodder to undermine his rulings, uh, both the ones that he's made and the ones that he may make in the future. All right. So uh, I want to turn to gag orders, which is a multi-jurisdictional, I think the technical term is mess. But let's start with gag orders in New York. Uh, there is one. Uh, have there been any significant gag order developments in the course of the last week or so? So the most interesting recent gag order development 
was the expansion of the initial gag order to cover the attorneys for the defense team, uh, the attorneys for, uh, for the former president and his co-defendants. And what made that very interesting was that we need to take a step back here into what that gag order was, because it's exceedingly narrow. Uh, Trump had has continued to attack the attorney general, has continued to attack the judge. That's all permitted within the bounds of the gag order. And as I mentioned, uh, Justice uh, Engeron did uh, essentially invite Trump to do just that. The scope of the gag order is limited for Trump to mentioning, making any statements whatsoever about Engeron's staff and period and stop. And what made Engron expand that order was after Trump's attorneys kept going after the law clerk. And the thing that precipitated the original gag order was Trump spreading a false rumor on Truth Social about the law clerk. And that Engron said hundreds of threats have poured into his chambers, whether they were written communications, packages, emails. Uh, he's specified that in an order. And we've seen there have been uh, when when Trump goes after a judge or a prosecutor, we've seen incidents like that happen in the past. Uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg received uh, a threatening letter with an, an unknown substance, which the authorities looked into it. It turned out not to be dangerous. Uh, but we have seen threats against uh, Judge Chutkin in D.C. Now, what happens with the expansion of the gag order is that the defense's argument is that the clerk is someone who's very esteemed by the judge. Uh, they communicate very often. He takes her her work very seriously, and they allege that she's biased because he she passes him notes too often. That's essentially the substance of their argument. Uh, says that she they claim that she rolls her eyes uh, sometimes when they're speaking, and they want to create a record. The judge has has uh, ruled that this is essentially a way to that. He is permitted, of course, to consult with a clerk. That's common. Uh, that there's no, no case law supporting the proposition that passing notes is evidence of bias and something that they could use to overturn a, a trial. And given the combustible political environment, given the threats that they're receiving, uh, they shouldn't attack his staff in open court. Uh, so the expansion of that order uh, is the most remarkable recent development and the one that may emerge again because we're currently waiting for Trump's legal team to file a motion for a mistrial. They promised to file that and they said they want to revisit that issue. They want to attack the the impartiality of the court um, through this indirect attack on the court staff. And so they're, they said that they're going to handle that delicately. We'll see if they handle that in a manner that the judge determines uh, is within the confines of his order. And this trial is far from over. Uh, Trump is still on the, the defense case is beginning on Monday. Don Jr. is going to be the first witness. 
Trump is on the witness list. He could still make a remark. We have seen lots of uh, attacks through surrogates on the court, the attorney general. If the judge views that this is an elaborate method to try to circumvent the gag order, if essentially there is another attack on the law clerk, we could see this issue come up again. And it should be emphasized the judge has fined Trump twice for being in violation of this right, gag and order. And has promised to do so more and at greater value. At greater value. And a key phrase from his order uh, that he may respond by, quote, possibly imprisoning him. Right. So that is, you know, at the ceiling where this could go. I think that the judge, as I said earlier, is very inclined to de-escalate the situation uh, to avoid any kind of any perception that he's over the rails and out to get him as these rulings become under scrutiny. His rulings already before the appellate division, uh, they are going to review all of it. And if it seems that he's stepping out of bounds, if it seems that he's blocking defense witnesses. He wants to be super above board and above reproach. Right, right. And I think I think it's especially clear, again, keeping turning back to the line, you can attack me. Uh, it's an extraordinary amount of latitude that the judge is giving. And I think that's the context of it. All right. So uh, that's gag order number one. Let's uh, jump on the Amtrak, uh, go past Trenton and Wilmington to gag order number two here in Washington, D.C., where it is raining hard all of a sudden. Quinta, give us a gag order number two update. Absolutely. So listeners may recall, uh, we also had a gag order imposed in D.C. from Judge Tanya Chutkin. This is a gag order that also exempts herself, um, as Engeron did as well. I think there's maybe a bit of uh, nobility there or... Again, you know, the the judge and the justice trying to kind of call them the you can attack me caucus. Right. (laughs) Well, so we can we can question the practical wisdom, but I think strategically it's it sort of goes in line with what Adam was saying. Um, They're trying to kind of put themselves above reproach, make sure that this doesn't seem like it's about, you know, hurt feelings or anything like that. Um, So Chutkin's uh, gag order was uh, quite a bit broader. Then Engeron's, hers, I'll just quote from it, uh, prohibits uh, all interested parties from making any public statements or directing others to make any public statements that target the special counsel prosecuting this case or his staff, defense counsel or their staff, any of the court staff or other supporting personnel, or any reasonably foreseeable witness or the substance of their testimony. Um, So this gag order uh, was initially imposed, I believe, on October uh, 17th. Um, it's had a bit of a journey since then. So Trump almost immediately filed a notice of appeal um, and then moved to stay the order pending appeal, um, at which point Chutkin issued an administrative stay. I, I think only uh, 24 hours or 48 hours later, Trump immediately uh, posted on, on Truth Social attacking Mark Meadows, who I think is certainly in the category of a reasonably foreseeable witness. Um, then 
after a brief by the government, Chutkin decided to get rid of the administrative stay. The gag order went back in effect, um, at which point the D.C. Circuit then weighed in and put on its own administrative stay on the gag order while it considers Trump's appeal. So the gag order is currently stayed. Um, I believe people should correct me if I'm wrong, but... I don't think that Trump has posted or said anything that would have violated it in the meantime, which uh, is quite impressive given uh, his his track record on self-control. Um, and I, I wonder if it actually does suggest that there's a certain level of canniness on his part um, in terms of calculating just how far he can push and you know, perhaps wanting to let the D.C. Circuit limit the the gag order. Part of his argument uh, before the D.C. Circuit has to do with Judge Chutkin's use of the word target in the order, essentially saying that, you know, target is very broad. It doesn't say, you know, attack. Um, it's not clear what that means. Um, and it's not just Trump who has criticized that. I've seen other First Amendment lawyers, um, including uh, Ken White, aka Popat, um, make that criticism as well. So there are, you know, serious arguments to be made here. I will say that um, so now that we have a panel assigned in the D.C. Circuit, um, just on a totally surface level, the panel doesn't look great to Trump to my eyes. Um, so we have Judge Millett, Judge Pillard and Judge Garcia in the D.C. Circuit. That's two Obama appointees and one Biden appointee, if you're counting. Uh, Trump has had a pretty good streak in uh, getting his own appointees, including uh, Judge Katz's Walker and Rao on these panels. Um, and they they often, though not always, break for him. Uh, this panel, I think he's he did not have that luck. Um, so we're still waiting for the briefing to come in. An oral argument is scheduled on November 20th. But until then, uh, he can say whatever he likes. Uh, so while we have you here talking about the D.C. case, what else is going on in Judge uh, Chutkin's courtroom? Uh, it's been a little bit of quiet from a news point of view the last week. Uh, does that mean things are chugging along or that they've slowed? I would put things in the chugging along category. Um, so it may be quiet from a news perspective, but the special counsel's office has been pretty busy filing um, oppositions to various motions by Trump. So if uh, listeners and viewers recall, Trump had filed a number of motions to dismiss on a variety of different grounds. Um, as well as a motion to strike what he called inflammatory allegations having to do uh, with January 6th specifically from the indictment on the grounds that the indictment didn't actually charge um, his speech on January 6th, I, we, assuming for First Amendment grounds. Um, and then he also file, had filed a motion to stay the case pending the resolution of uh, the issue regarding whether or not he has immunity as a former president uh, to these charges. So the government uh, has filed oppositions to all of these. Uh, we can go more into the details. I think that the, the main top line, um, as far as I was concerned, is that of course, the, so the government does not want to stay the case uh, pending uh, the resolution of the immunity issue. Big surprise there. And there's also some interesting stuff in its response to Trump's motion to strike the inflammatory or so, quote unquote, inflammatory allegations, um, where the government is really indicating that they plan to position 
January 6th and Trump's speech on January 6th, his actions the day itself as really central to the trial. Um, there's a great write-up on this from Kyle Cheney at Politico, but essentially it, it's not immediately clear from the indictment to what extent that speech on the ellipse is going to feature was was going to feature in the prosecution. I think this filing makes it very clear that that is centrally involved, even though Trump has not been charged for you know insurrection or incitement for uh, for that speech. So let me let me pause you there yeah. because one person who has written yes. a great deal about incitement and insurrection and that sort of thing in connection with this is Alan Rosenstein. Yeah. Um, and so this uh, inclusion of, you know, we're going to include a lot of evidence about the speech, we're going to show a lot about the speech, but having not charged the speech in particular, this is roughly consistent with what you were saying at the time of the indictment itself, right? That this, the use of the speech in the indictment allows them to bring in all kinds of evidence about it, but without having to show that it was actually incitement within the meaning of the, the First Amendment. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, you know, as many readers of Lawfare will, will know, the st legal standard for incitement is extremely high under the famous Supreme Court case of Brandenburg versus Ohio, um, basically there must be sort of imminent and very concrete uh, call for violence or lawless action. And, um, you know, the the speech alone that Trump gave on January 6th probably does not meet that bar. Now, I, you know, I have with others written um, about how if the government really wanted to punish or uh, indict Trump for insurrection. There are ways that it could, by connecting the speech to some other conduct that he did on January 6th, maybe make a, a plausible case for it. But that was always going to be a legally, um, frankly, risky move for the government. Um, and so it's not surprising that to the extent the government is including um, the events of January 6th and their kind of inciting character, it's doing so as a matter of, and I hate to use this term, uh, as a matter of vibes rather than as any sort of direct uh, claim of of incitement. And just to be clear, Alan, how does it, how, how does the vibes stuff get in? Like, what's the allegation by which we're not going to charge you with X speech because maybe we don't think we can prove that it's incitement, but we're going to bring in a whole lot of evidence about it anyway. That seems a little bit cheating. How did they manage it? Yeah. So I think there are two answers. I mean, one, I really do think that there's an atmospheric component of it and prosecutors and defense attorneys are always trying to present their position in the light most favorable to their side. And it's the role of the, the judge to police that and make sure that evidence that's overly prejudicial isn't coming in. Um, but I do think there's also a concrete evidential point here, evidentiary point here, uh, which is that it does go to Trump's intent. Um, you know, the, the prosecution needs to establish that Trump knew that what he was saying was false, that he was willing to um, really do whatever it took to maintain power despite having lost the 2020 election. And I think one thing the prosecution can say is, look, he was willing to go out in public on January 6th having been told that there were all of these extremists who were armed in front of him. And he was willing to say things that were obviously inflammatory, putting aside whether that meets the standard of incitement, it shows his state of mind then, and therefore presumably suggests certain things about his state of mind throughout that entire period. That is what I would expect the government to use um, the, the January 6th remarks uh, precisely for, and, and in particular, you know, the effect that those, that those had. 
and of course, as well, perfectly lawful, in fact, constitutionally protected acts can be overt acts in a conspiracy. And these are three conspiracy charges. That that's that's correct as well. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying, you know, the government says that last part explicitly in uh the opposition to Trump's motion to dismiss on statutory and constitutional grounds. Um, and also makes the point, which I think is important, um, that as Alan says, I mean, the question of the mens rea issue is obviously going to be huge here. But the government also says uh, I'll just quote because I think it's important. Um, Moreover, even if the defendant could supply admissible evidence of his own personal belief that the election was rigged or stolen, it would not license him to deploy fraud and deceit to remedy what he perceived to be a wrong, and it would not provide a defense to the charge. So essentially uh, saying, you know, even if he really, really believed in his heart of hearts that the election was stolen, that is not actually a defense to the charges that we are bringing here. Of course, it's a stronger case if they can show that he he knew that it wasn't stolen and he was he was lying. Um, but I do think that that was notable because this issue of, you know, can we possibly peer into the unique mind of Donald Trump has been something that uh, we've all been speculating on for quite a while. And I, I found it interesting that the special counsel explicitly weighed in on the matter. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, turning away from uh, the uh, great non-state of the District of Columbia, and we're actually going to skip over Mar-a-Lago this week because there's not that much that happened there, and uh, Roger, uh, who is our Mar-a-Lago guy, is away anyway. Uh, so let's go to the great state of Minnesota and the uh, even greater state, if I have to concede, of Colorado. Um, sorry, Alan, I know your your native Minnesota takes offense at that, but Colorado mm -hmm. is a really great state. They, they have better mountains, I'll give you that. They do have better mountains mm -hmm. in, insofar as they have some. We had a um, a, a trial in Colorado. We've got a Supreme Court consideration of this, the Section 3 matter in Minnesota. And you at the University of Minnesota had a conference about it all. So bring us up to date on uh, Section 3 in the upper Midwest and the Rocky Mountain states. Uh, so Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, is very long and complicated, but basically it provides that if you had a position of authority under the U.S. government or state government and you participated in an insurrection, you cannot have future positions 
of authority in the U.S. or state government. And after January 6th, um, we saw a lot of sort of academic discussion about whether Trump violated Section 3, and very quickly that academic discussion spilled into actual lawsuits. And at this point, there are uh, dozens of lawsuits across the country in both federal and state court challenging Trump's eligibility. Um, the lawsuits in federal court haven't really gone anywhere, and there are reasons to think that they probably won't go very far. The requirements of standing in federal court are quite uh, strict, and uh, it's unclear who has standing to challenge uh, Trump's eligibility. Uh, but in state court, those requirements are quite a bit loosened. And so we're seeing several states, Minnesota and Colorado, chief among them, uh, that have progressed at least uh, you know, some some way down the path to determining whether Trump is eligible under Section 3. Um, the Minnesota Supreme Court heard arguments in this case last week uh, because of Minnesota law. Um, you can bring a challenge uh, to uh, the eligibility of a statewide or nationwide office directly in Minnesota Supreme Court. So you can skip all the trial court, which I think is one way that Minnesota is better than Colorado, even if we don't have the mountains. Uh, in Colorado, by contrast, it has to go through the sort of normal trial court process. So Minnesota heard the case last week, um, and the Colorado uh, District Court also heard the case last week. Um, Minnesota just held one oral argument. The Colorado court held a five-day evidentiary hearing with a lot of very interesting uh, witnesses uh, from both Trump's side and from the side challenging his eligibility. Um, earlier this week, the Minnesota Supreme Court actually dismissed the case in Minnesota, but it did so on sort of interesting procedural grounds. It held that the case was essentially not ripe because there's no bar under Minnesota law for putting people who are potentially disqualified from the president on the primary ballot process. So uh, the only bar there is is to putting someone who's disqualified on the general election ballot. So the Minnesota Supreme Court um, dismissed the case for now, but said, feel free to bring this case back for the general election, which is an interesting approach, um, given that... Um, uh, one of the, the the hopes of bringing the case now was that it would give um, Minnesota Republicans uh, a lot of time to decide who other than Trump to nominate if the Minnesota Supreme Court threw Trump off the ballot. Uh, now, especially if the Minnesota Supreme Court waits until after the nominating convention, which I think is in June or July, sometime in the summer of 2024, um, there's really not going to be a lot of time. So I'm not entirely clear what the um, uh, what 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 the Minnesota Supreme Court is trying to accomplish with this uh, delay. Um, the Colorado trial, on the other hand, um, has finished in the sense that the five days of uh, the evidentiary you know hearings have have ended. And now we're just waiting for the trial court to uh, decide whether Trump is uh, or is not uh, eligible. So we're, we're in a bit of a, a holding pattern, and I suspect we'll we'll almost certainly hear from the Colorado court, before the Minnesota Supreme Court is willing to uh, rehear the case uh, next year if Trump, as he is very likely to do, gains the Republican nomination. So a question about the Minnesota Supreme Court adjudication. Let's say um, the fictitious character Bozo the Clown announced uh, that he was running for president, as I believe Bozo the Clown in fact once did. And uh, somebody said in Minnesota, wait a minute, he can't appear on the ballot. He's not real or like SpongeBob SquarePants or something. You know, he's not eligible to be president. He's actually a cartoon character. 
is the the logical import of the is the logical consequence of the Minnesota Supreme Court that they couldn't hear that until he'd won the Republican primary? Yes. I mean, I, I think so. Like well, a so, very so I, sound adjudication. It, it doesn't sound great, but look, the law is full of fun quirks. I, I think the logic is this, at least in Minnesota, the the theory behind how primaries work is that although they are administered by the, the state, particularly secretary of state, they are essentially services that the state provides to the parties. So really what they are is they're essentially private, that this, these, these, these private acts private organizations, and the state just kind of helps, you know, helps with it. And so the party decides what it takes to get on the ballot. And that's usually, you know, some number of signatures and that sort of thing. And then the that then you're on the ballot, right? And ultimately, the primary is about who the party chooses for the general election. Um, so that, look, that's the theory, right? Yeah, I, 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 re- I am I re- grimacing just as much as you are, because it seems like a big waste of time. I respect the theory, but I also think, you know, the the consequence here, and I know we're supposed to be all purist about the law and not consequentialist about outcomes and stuff, but it seems to me that the idea here is you defer adjudication until the stakes are highest, which is not the what that's not what's good for democracy here. If Trump is not qualified to be president, we should know that sooner rather than later, in my opinion. Look, I, I, I completely agree with you. And reading between the lines, what I suspect is the case. And look, during our argument, it was pretty clear that the justices of the Minnesota Supreme Court were not super excited um, to decide this case. And so reading between the lines, what may very well be happening is they found a plausible legal basis to delay this ruling. And, and look, it's not a frivolous argument that that the, the court has made. And also, we to, to, to should be clear, the court has not yet fully issued its has not issued its full opinion. It issued a, a brief four page order um, outlining its reasoning, but saying that the opinion is to come. So you know, maybe they'll have something more convincing to say when they write the full opinion. I would it would not surprise me that the availability of this argument plus the hope that maybe in the next six months this will be resolved one way or the other by the Supreme Court so that someone else deals with it, not the Minnesota Supreme Court, was driving that. Of course, I am not privy to the the what the justices were thinking, um, but I, I can imagine how a justice who's not super excited um, to wade into this could decide that this is a, a convenient way of punting the issue, uh, at least temporarily. To a state court trial judge in Colorado who I mean, can do the job for them? Is that the idea? Well, well, look, co- apparently Colorado is so much better than Minnesota. So presumably well, it is. It's maybe not, it's that rarefied so mountain far, air. We don't have evidence that Colorado is ducking the matter. Uh, so disgrace true. to Allen State. And uh, with that, let's go to our last subject matter before we go to audience questions. Anna is, you know, joining us from within the lull. And the lull, capital L, is what happens in Fulton County after the first batch of people plead out, but before the trial heats up again. And so this creates a kind of like vacation-like environment for Anna. uh, And she has decided to use that lull, capital L, to break some news. So Anna, uh, tell us about uh, the uh, document uh, you published uh, last week. 
Right. So we uh, obtained a copy of this 400 page report uh, by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation into the voting system breach that happened there in January of 2021. Uh, This report was not previously public uh, and we published it on Friday of last week. And it gives a lot of insights into the GBI's investigation and, and what they found. I should say that just for folks to keep in mind, the GBI investigation was something that was going on in parallel with the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation uh, after the events in Coffee County kind of started coming to light in, in early 2022. Uh, there were a, a little bit of a delay. And then both of these uh, law enforcement agencies or excuse me, uh, bodies Fulton County District Attorney's Office and then the GBI started separately investigating the events there. We've, of course, seen that there are four people in Fulton County in the in the sprawling RICO case who have been indicted for uh, related to the conduct in Coffee County. Although, of course, everyone is is within the RICO conspiracy. And that is one of the you know prongs of the of the alleged conspiracy. And and so this report, I you know, I will say that there is not, and I, I will have more insights on lawfare about this soon. And and I think that Ben, I'll try to keep it short because I will probably end up doing a podcast on on that. Uh, but there's not a whole lot in this report that we didn't already know about the Coffee County breach. Uh, perhaps other than uh, you know, there is one significant development there. For a long time, you know, Sidney Powell, her attorney, had been arguing that there was this written invitation to come into Coffee County and and uh, have this third party company uh, copy all the voting machines there when this occurred in in January of 2021. But it no one knew, you know, who wrote this invitation, what it said, uh, why it was, you know, initiated. Uh, but the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, as a part of their investigation, they seized a desktop computer uh, uh, from the uh, Board of Elections, uh, and it they were able to recover, you know, thousands of Misty Hampton's emails that that she had from her time as the election supervisor there. And on that computer, they recovered this uh, so-called written invitation, where she kind of says, you know, very vaguely and cryptically, "Y'all can come to my office any." time in response to an open records request from a a Georgia attorney named Preston Halliburton, who just days before had represented Kathy Latham and Rudy Giuliani at uh, a December 30th state legislature hearing uh, in which uh, there were these alleged false claims that were made about voter fraud. So it's a it's a tangled tale, but it, that is one of the revelations that 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 came out through the report and through the GBI's investigation. Other than that, you know, again, I'll have more to say about it soon on Lawfare, but uh, I, I do think that there are a lot of striking omissions in the report uh, that the GBI could have uh, investigated further. And, and there are a lot of credible leads that they did not pursue. Um, so I, I think that there are some serious questions about how thoroughly this, uh, this uh, breach was investigated. Other wise have things in Fulton County been as quiet as they have seemed to me or is there churn going on of which I was unaware 
There, there's, uh, it's pretty quiet. Uh, Jeff Clark filed a motion today to delay the proceedings in Fulton County for three months. Um, he, you know, this comes on uh, the kind of tail end of of the um, his DC bar proceedings, getting a trial date for January. You know, he also has removal uh, appellate litigation going on. His basic argument there is that. He's too busy maybe getting disbarred and maybe getting removed to federal court to, you know, deal with kind of all of the different uh, deadlines that that are um, coming up in the case. So we'll see what McAfee does with that. But I I think the bigger issue for McAfee is what he's going to do about setting a trial date and when he's going to set it. Um, And and, you know, there is a December 1st hearing coming up on some of these uh, dispositive motions from Trump and and a few other defendants. So we will be covering that. But it is pretty quiet. Um, Oh, and I should say December 15th oral argument at the 11th Circuit on the um, Meadows and uh, the removal uh, stuff. So. Uh, there's a few things coming up, but it is pretty quiet, although I'm, you know, pure speculation, but I am waiting to see if we're going to get some more pleas uh, in the in the coming weeks. All right. Uh, we are going to go to audience questions. Uh, Ruth, the floor is yours. Yeah, Mike, it's a really simple question. Could the New York judge have interrupted uh, Mr. Trump's testimony to ask Mr. Trump, do you understand the question? Um, You know, there seemed to be an assumption that he was being willful, which may very well be likely, or that this could be part of some grand strategy. But being cognitively unable to focus could be an explanation, too. Yeah. So did the issue of the, the Alan raised the issue of id. Uh, Ruth is raising the issue of cognitive impairment. Was there any suggestion that this person, you know, might be a raving nutcase? Well, we'll have to go to his attorney, Christopher Kaiser's remarks right after the testimony. Uh, He said, and I think with a very Trumpian superlative, that this was the best testimony that a client has given that he's seen in his decades-long career. So I don't think that they're trying that argument. Uh, He's, uh, you know, whether trying to uh, impress his client or not, uh, is telling the world his client did a fantastic job. Uh, He is certainly not arguing cognitive impairment. Uh, I think what's going on here uh, that uh, quite clearly is both in and out of court a sustained effort to try to uh, discredit the proceedings. And we're seeing it every day on Truth Social. We're seeing it all the time in court. We've seen antagonism to the judge, both from Trump and his lawyers, quite openly. And it's a sustained effort. All right. Melissa, uh, you have the next question. Hi. If there are additional appeals taken by Trump in the D.C. case, will the current appellate panel hear those appeals or is each appeal assigned randomly to a different appellate panel? Thanks. Uh, This is a complicated question. As a general matter, you know, emergency appeals uh, don't go necessarily like the when this case is over, it will have a a direct appeal, and that uh, a panel will not be necessarily the same 
as the panel on these emergency uh, interlocutory matters. Uh, the wrinkle is if there were, so I don't think the, the gag order is a completely, it, that panel will not necessarily be the same panel. The wrinkle that I don't know the answer to is if, and maybe Quinto or Alan or, or Anna does, but if Chutkin were to deny the motion to dismiss and that were to go up, uh, that's actually a controlling you know, dispositive question of the case. And that panel might or might not be the same one. And I don't know what the DC Circuit rule on that is. Do any of you? I've been looking at the DC Circuit's internal procedures, which you can find online, uh, trying to figure out the answer. And I have no idea, I'm afraid. I think it, I think it depends. If I'm reading this correctly, I think it depends whether the court considers the entire case to have been assigned to a merits panel, in which case it would be the same panel, or whether you can lop off different parts of a case and assign those to different merits panels as opposed to a motions panel. But I, I genuinely have no idea. So I, I think, but I'm not sure, that the answer is because this is a dispositive question of law, that would require the dismissal of the entire case, that the panel that would hear this interlocutory appeal would presumptively be the same panel as would then hear the direct appeal. But I'm not sure about that, but that's I'm quite sure that's not true of a situation in which, uh, you know, what goes up is a gag order question. All right, uh, Jacob, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, all. So as a two-part question, I'll ask it together because they're related. Um, given his performance this week, uh, is there any chance that Trump's criminal defense attorneys put him on the stand in the criminal trials? And if he doesn't take the stand, which obviously he doesn't have to do, does that have any implications to any defenses that his teams might mount? Thanks. So on the one hand, this this is a very interesting question. Because on the one hand, the answer is hell no. Trump has shown that he is completely ungovernable, has no impulse control, and would be an absolute disaster uh, on the stand from the perspective of his criminal liability. However, first, Trump does what Trump wants to do. His lawyers cannot prevent him from getting on the stand. And he really does seem to want to talk a lot about everything. Second, and this is the great paradox of these cases, Trump is not, in a sense, a normal defendant. Well, he's not a normal defendant for many reasons, but he's not a normal defendant in the sense that it's not even because he's trying to get acquitted. That has never been his theory of how he gets off, gets out of this trouble. His theory is he wins the presidency and then makes these cases go away by some magic DOJ machinations or he pardons himself or whatever. So he's in some sense trying to part, you know, maybe, maybe he's trying to get acquitted, but mostly he's trying to play to his base and within the broader political context. And so there's a world in which he decides that he wants to get up there and make his pitch, especially in the, the Georgia trial, if it's televised. Um, you know, I think it'd be very, very bad for him from a criminal liability perspective. Um, but uh, Trump is a unique individual. 
Uh, I would absolutely echo that point, that in terms of at least what I've seen of uh, the former president's testimony, is that the objective seems to be, and the audience seems to be, other something other than the trier of fact. If you wanted to limit your civil liability, you don't go on the witness stand in a bench trial and attack the judge for inter- uninterrupted hours. That's not his objective. His objective is to make his pitch uh, to the uh, to his base, to his supporters, to the press, that everything is unfair. And we've seen that in other cases. We have seen in uh, pretrial proceedings, in the criminal cases, his attorneys making arguments that would be very reminiscent of things that he himself has said on Truth Social uh, and with a kind of through line of attacking the the legitimacy of the proceedings against him, presenting it all as unfair, politically motivated, and uh, and to uh, put a fine point on it, secretly motivated, directed by the White House, even if it's a state civil trial that long preceded, predated the White House, as happened in the civil case. So uh, I would absolutely echo that remark. It's more about messaging uh, than uh, trial strategy on the lower court level. I would just uh, add one note of caution, which is that Trump's uh, strategy here is to win the election and thereby make these cases go away. That doesn't apply to um, to the New York civil case, but it does apply here. So while I agree with everything that I that has been said, ultimately the political question of does this help or hurt him is what's going to govern this, not any question of whether it's good trial strategy. Um, okay, um, we're going to get through these uh, remaining questions. Paul, the floor is yours. Thank you. This last Monday, the government filed in district court in D.C., a brief in opposition to Trump's motion to stay the election's case. The brief proposed, quote, to prevent undue delay and maintain the trial date, the court should consider and decide first among the motions pending on the docket the defendant's two claims that could be subject to interlocutory appeal, presidential immunity and double jeopardy, end quote. Jack Smith's team said the double jeopardy claim stemming from Trump's impeachment acquittal was frivolous. What do you think about these two claims as priorities? Uh, They are the priorities for the simple reason that they are um, uh, subject to interlocutory appeal. The government seems to concede that and therefore that they uh, have the capacity to delay the trial. Uh, that's why they are the government is treating them as as priorities. They are clearly right to do it. The strongest argument that Trump has on the merits, in my view, is the presidential immunity argument, not because it's that strong, but because almost everything else he's got is trash. And also because nobody knows how the Supreme Court's going to handle that. And so from the government's point of view, getting that dealt with uh, at the appellate court level is a very high priority issue. Uh, secondly, as to the double jeopardy argument, that is not going to prevail. Um, that falls in the category of trash. 
but it does have the capacity to trigger an interlocutory appeal. So they need to deal with it. And so they're just saying to Judge Chutkin, if you're serious about March, and we really want you to be serious about March, please be serious about March. We got to get these things done. So please deny them quickly so that we can get them uh, up on appeal and deal with whatever issues uh, they may have. Um, I will just read Jay's question. A few weeks ago, the issue of moral turpitude arose. Could you briefly remind us which case this arose in and why the attempt to subvert a legal election for president is not considered a crime of moral turpitude? This question has Anna Bauer's name all over it. Anna Bauer, who is not guilty of moral turpitude, by the way, uh, can you give us the moral turpitude lesson? Uh, right. So this a yeah, good question. This came up in the Fulton County case because uh, in the in the plea negotiations, something that uh, the parties uh, kind of agreed to when when various people uh, entered into a plea deal is that the state would kind of stipulate that 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 uh, what the individuals were pleading to is not a crime of moral turpitude. The reason that this came up is because I think I think it's yeah, all of them because it's three lawyers and one bail bondsman, they're all in professions where there are certain um, kind of potential consequences if you are convicted uh, of a crime of moral turpitude. Uh, so in the context of bar admissions, there could be automatic disciplinary proceedings uh, if you are convicted or or um, uh, plead to a, a crime of moral turpitude. Um, and then in the bail bondsman context, you know, you have a license to keep. Um, so uh, that's the reason that it came up. Crimes of moral turpitude are actually like it's it's the kind of weird thing where in different states, the state might uh, kind of specify that a certain crime is a crime of moral turpitude or not. Um, here, of course, I, I think that it was unclear uh, what the status of of some of these crimes were. And so that's why the, the state uh, was was willing to stipulate to it. I think the second part of the question is, um, oh, right. Why would it not be a crime of moral turpitude? I mean, good question. I, I mean, I, I will say that keep in mind that uh, these folks didn't plead to the RICO charge, which uh, specifies that uh, is the is the charge that is actually saying that these folks joined a conspiracy to overturn the election. So maybe there's, you know, a distinction there. Uh, so I but, you know, again, it's it's just something that the prosecution was willing to agree to. And I'm, I'm not sure why. Um, I guess that they just really uh, wanted these folks to plead out and and they were willing to, you know, make this stipulation in order to make it happen. Okay. Uh, Richard asks, I'm curious about what the panelists' estimations are of the odds that before these trials are over, Trump's inability to comply with a gag order or two or three will result in him spending a night or more in the Hoosgau. Um, let's start with our two gag order correspondents, and then uh, Alan clearly has views on the subject. Adam, what are the chances? Well, the there has already been that warning from uh, Judge Ngoran. He said, and just quite explicitly in the written order, that if he violates the gag order again, the consequence could be, and this is a direct quote, possibly imprisoning him. Uh, can Trump avoid 
attacking the clerk before this is over. I I think for the reasons I've said throughout all of this, I think that he's going to, and by he I mean the judge here, trying going to try to avoid every possible way to to escalate. He was going to want to de-escalate, not escalate. Uh, so I find it highly unlikely, uh, though it is hanging there like Chekhov's proverbial gun. Uh, it was introduced in Act One. We are heading toward uh, the next act of the trial with the defense case. There will be other uh, Trump appearances. He doesn't have tremendous impulse control. We'll see where this goes. Quinta, what do you think? Is Judge Chutkin going to lock him up? Yeah, Judge Chutkin is also not a bomb thrower. Um, So I would put the odds at low, but not zero. I mean, look, Trump is very good at managing escalatory cycles with the institutions that are trying to hold him to account. And if he decides that it's in his best interest, fundraising wise, to get himself thrown in the clapper, uh, then I wouldn't put it out of the question as completely insane as that sounds. But I, I don't think it is likely. And if you made me bet on it, I would bet against it. Alan, you're all cowards. I'm going to I'm going to stand here and I'm going to say I think I think he's going to get thrown into I just I love the who's I love the phrase the who's gal. <laughs> um but I feel like I need to contribute. He's 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 going to the slammer. He's he's, he's going to get thrown in the clink. Alan is totally right here and there's a simple reason rationale that can prove it, which is when was the last time he passed up an opportunity for something theatrical that makes him look like a victim? And this is going to happen this summer uh, or in the middle of trial when people's attention is flagging. He's not going to do it in New York court. He's going to make Tanya Chutkin do it mid-trial in like on like in the Super Tuesday period. And he's going to fundraise off of it. It's this is a no brainer. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't think he, I, I, I think I think that's possible. I also just really wouldn't put it past him to just not be able to control his impulses. Right. Or, you know, or Judge Chuckin or, or Judge Ingram, you know, take his phone away or something like that. Right. Like that's, there's no, not he's totally going to push it until <laughs> okay. they lock him up. All right. Josh asks in the Florida documents case, could Trump's lawyers ask for a bench trial if they believed they could get an acquittal on all charges from Judge Cannon? Clearly a purely hypothetical question, but wouldn't a quick acquittal before November 20, 2024 be even better than delay? I say Trump's lawyers because he is essentially financing the defense's legal expenses. Okay, so this is why this is not going to happen. First of all, the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial can be waived. As a general matter, you don't ever as a defendant want to waive it. And the reason is because in the, in a bench trial, you have one trier of fact, and the government has to prove it to her beyond a reasonable doubt. In a jury trial, you have to convince one person not to convince, not to convict, and that is effectively a win. So, yes, theoretically, he could waive his right to a jury trial, but you'd be rolling the dice that there's no, there's nobody you can get on the jury 
that, that you want one bite at the apple, granted it's Judge Cannon, but you want one bite of the apple instead of 12. Okay, Ian asks, I'm not sure if I'm just being cynical, but given Biden's attachment to institutions, I've been assuming he'll pardon Trump from any federal charges or convictions before leaving office, either in 2025 or 2029. Look at all the panelists shaking their heads. Of course, this wouldn't affect the Georgia case. Panelists' views. Quinta and Alan are both shaking their heads. Quinta. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's very attractive to political pundits to suggest that Joe Biden should pull a Profiles in Courage and uh, do like Gerald Ford and, and pardon Trump. But just the political situation is profoundly different than it was after the end of the Nixon presidency. The Ford pardon of Nixon was essentially all but explicitly in exchange for Nixon just going away. Um, which Trump is obviously not going to do. And I frankly think the political price in terms of backlash uh, from among Democrats would be extreme. Um, there's just no good reason to do it. Alan, do you uh, do? You- yeah, I agree. I mean, we're way I mean, I, I know there's a lot of like echoes of Ford and Nixon here, but we're way past that. America is much more polarized. Frankly, Trump makes Nixon look like a Boy Scout. We're, li- we're dealing with a level of criminality and threat to the democratic process that is orders of magnitude greater than anything, frankly, since the Civil War. Um, and if he goes to jail, he's going to go to jail. All right. The last two questions, both are Quinta Jurassic specials. Anonymous attendee who always asks really good questions. How extensive is the existing law? I imagine chiefly case law that governs what can and can't be the subject of a gag order. Is there a difference between the defendant saying, I'd like to see someone teach Judge X a lesson that they'll never forget? And, for example, an influential cable news talking head saying the same thing. So the law in this score is maybe uh, less well-developed than one might like and certainly less well-developed than I had expected. So the the main case here that you'll see cited in the briefing is a case called Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada. Um, which has sort of sets out a test that has been adopted by a variety of courts, including, I believe, in the D.C. Circuit, that uh, you can impose a gag order if the the speech in question has a, quote, substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing an adjudicative proceeding. The issue here is that most of the the litigation on this question and the case law has to do with uh, gag orders on attorneys or on the press, um, not on a gag order on the defendant themselves, which creates a bit of a problem because the reason why this case law develops in the first place is because of the defendant's right to a fair trial. So then you sort of run into the question of can the defendant, can you prevent the defendant from preventing themselves from having a fair trial? Um, And you can get tied up in knots. And the theory here is, I think it's fair to say, a bit underdeveloped. Um, So you see that the... um, the special counsel's office is citing that Nevada case, um, which I'm being informed in the in the chat is actually Gentile. They're citing that Nevada case. You see Trump arguing, no, actually, Gentile only uh, applies to counsel, not to the defendant personally, um, going back and forth. So we will see what the, the D.C. Circuit um, has to say. But I think the, the short version is that it is 
less developed than you might expect, but it is also true that courts have a pretty expansive authority to maintain order um, within the the courtroom. Um, and so given that, um, you know, Judge Chutkin uh, has, and Judge Ingarn, or Justice Ingarn as well, has a pretty hefty ability to control what people do and don't say in the courtroom and and re- in speech related to the courtroom in a way that they don't uh, when it comes to, say, a commentator on cable news. Yeah, just to, uh, to th- there's three levels of this question. There's the question of the lawyer, the, the court's authority is at its apex with respect to lawyers who are practicing before the court, who are officers of the court. There are also people who are subject to the court's immediate jurisdiction. For example, if you're a defendant in the case, if you're the prosecutor, right, if you're a witness, the court has sort of inherent authority to order you around. The source of that authority will vary a little bit. If you're a cable news host who has nothing to do with the case, you're just expressing your opinion, you got a heavy duty First Amendment right to say what you want. And the likelihood that a court's going to be able to slap a gag order on you is really, really, really remote. Last question. Uh, Can someone summarize the filing that I believe was due 5 p.m. 11-8-2023 from Trump's lawyers with respect to his appeal of Chutkin's gag order. Boy, uh, Josh, you give us a lot to work with here. Um, uh, Quinta, yeah, this is like a pop, this is like a pop quiz. Exactly. Um, so I, I, I did look that up to make sure I was thinking of the right filing. It is a 67 page filing, so I'm not going to summarize the entire thing. Um, I believe what the questioner is referring to is Trump's opening brief, um, in, in his appeal, Frankly, the arguments here are pretty much the same as the arguments that he has already made in front of Chuck Hinn. Um, He's saying that uh, he has a First Amendment right, um, that the American people have a First Amendment right to hear what he has to say, um, and that the order is overly vague insofar as it uses the term target rather than something that's more specific. Um, so that's really the long and the short of it. We've, If you've listened to us talk about how Trump has argued against the gag order in D.C. in the past, he's really making the same arguments here. I don't think there's a huge amount new. All right. Folks, we are going to leave it there. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks to Quinta Jurassic, Anna Bauer, Alan Rosenstein, and special thanks to our special guests from the Deadline Parlor, Adam Klasfeld of The Messenger. See you next week. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, Our audio engineer this episode is the one, the only Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Hey, folks, you know, we're getting a lot of great questions. We did 12 audience questions today, and not one of them was from you. If you are not a material supporter of Lawfare, you can change that. You can come into the inner circle, pose your own questions. Some people like me to read them. Some people read them themselves or ask them themselves. You can be part of the conversation. Go to lawfaremedia.org slash support, and next time those questions can be yours. Hey, the Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the newly Istanbul-based Sophia Yan. 
And as always, thanks for listening.